are listening to Taking Art Apart, a podcast presented by Westin Haag. I am Rosa Sangenberg, visual artist and writer. I am Jael Keizer, philosopher and writer. We're launching an experimental series of themes that one may come across when stepping into the art world, whether as a young artist, established institution, or curious viewer. Is art a forecast? In this extra-long final episode, we delve into possible futures of art and art spaces. What role does art still have to play? And in turn, how does it adapt to possible near realities? These days, many artists connect their practice to sustainability and the Anthropocene. Maybe art can offer a cure for the world, or rather the wake-up call. How do we navigate this future discourse? This episode features visual artist Asad Raza, researcher and writer Katarzyna Jankowska, who express their concerns for the art of the future in combination with the spaces in which we engage with art. Later, we hear Takoni Stok, director and teacher at the Art Science Faculty of the Royal Academy of Arts in The Hague, the Netherlands, on where he sees art education in the future. Before all this, however, let us close our eyes and imagine a possible future. Can you imagine yourself in a world without museums? At least without the museums that we know of today. The museum of the day is the result of years of experimenting with presenting and preserving artworks. Ideally, a museum of today not only allows for the best experience of the work, but also for the human observer to feel as comfortable as possible within the perfectly lipped and tempered room. A museum of today is optimized to avoid the least natural decay possible so that the artworks presented have the highest chance of eternally staying true to how they looked when they were fresh. This is self-evident, of course, as these artworks are meant to represent the rich cultural heritage of human species. I guess we can see this museum in our head. We know this canon all too well. Well, imagine a future museum. Imagine you in such a museum barely able to stay inside for longer than absolutely necessary because of an insufferable smell, possibly stemming from the rotten and moldy artworks presented. Artworks that probably once were supposed to resemble something more or less recognizable, but through time have been consumed by bacterial molecules and other living species. You feel the need to leave this room immediately, not only because of the smell, but also because your body starts to sweat in this warm, humid air the rooms contain. Yet another, and probably the biggest reason to leave this museum as fast as possible, is due to an intense feeling of claustrophobia as you feel there are too many visitors. In fact, around 1 billion other visitors decided to visit the museum at the same time as you, most of which do not have the same intentions to visit the museum as you, most of which are not human. 
This smelly, humid future museum considers any living species as their audience and participants. Any species that has something to benefit from this museum. Perhaps the artwork presented are just as life-assuring as art can be for humans, but maybe they are species who do not necessarily appreciate the preservation of artworks in the same way that we humans do. In this future museum, preservation has obtained a new meaning, one that concerns the preservation of the Earth's ecology. To a couple of the species who decided to visit this museum, the value of an artwork, such as the painting, is not defined by how it looks, but rather the air it creates, or the bacteria it develops through natural decay. Maybe the artworks are very nourishing and have a very exquisite taste. Instead of imagining a future museum with even more high technological equipment to preserve the artworks, where the interior is always meant to stimulate human needs most effectively, try to imagine a future museum that lives on by itself, where time is not artificially paused. A museum that accepts the artwork as organic entities with natural destiny of decline. Artworks become moist, fluffy and lumpy, smelly, unclear, fragile and contaminating. Their original purposes change, just like normal living things. Organic and non-organic entities mix and create symbiosis. Bacteria flourishes and photosynthesis reproduces and generates new lives. The determination of high quality changes. Deterioration becomes quality. Can you imagine a museum that is not only made for humans, even in the most literal sense? What we heard just now is Rosa's essay called Museum of the Future. Rosa speculates on a possible future museum, one in which non-human agencies are not only allowed in, but are the main condition. Soon Katarzyna Jankowska will directly reflect on this scenario in her essay. But first some words by American artist Asad Raza. His previous show, Coalescence, at West Den Haag, stimulated us to connect him to our topic. How can museum spaces become more open to living conditions and allow for things to grow? Something I think is interesting is there's a discourse about the idea of worlding, you know, the idea of creating worlds. And in, in a world is typically a game or a situation of interaction with different, um, with different entities, you know, different people, objects, materials, other beings. And, and together they are operating some sort of a, a structure together or a game or a, or a world. That's what a world is made up of. And I think that that's somehow more 
more interesting and more relevant in the 20th century to operate in the sense of making, of trying to make worlds uh, than to try to make things, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, experience of each of these entities is important, not just the visitor, but also the caretakers and the cultivators and also the institution and the curator and, and other ones, but and, and the materials themselves and the living beings that are that are part of the system which aren't human. So all of those all of those entities have their have their role and also have importance. You know, it's not only for the human. Uh, lately in my work, I've been exploring more the idea of how works can become habitats for non-human living beings also. And I think that that's a relevant thing to do because uh, to exist in the fully Anthropocene mentality of human beings are the ultimate source and um, origin of meaning seems really like an artifact of the last couple hundred years to me where we've been enclosing ourselves more and more in sterile environments and less and less connected to this sort of um, symbiotic relations with all of the other kind of living and non-living beings so including the entire planetary system I'm also a bit concerned about oh I'm curious about the future of the art museum um, because you talk about works like this that can also where other species and humans can benefit from this work in a sense it's not only made for our uh, luxury contemplation and uh, pleasure it's made for other just as important living beings on earth to enjoy in a different way and uh, yeah so i was wondering um and also because you have a quite deliberate relation to the space when you are working with art So I'm wondering if you have considered how a museum could look like, an art museum could look like in the future. That's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things I think has been interesting about working here in West Den Haag is the building is so specific, you know, because to me the building really reflects the um, the high 20th century period of modernism in architecture and also in the way that it structurally separates the different aspects of life. So it was originally built as an embassy by Marcel Breuer, an architect who I like, but whose work also is part of the 20th century in the sense that it's a, a space divided into many small rooms and in each of these rooms a different department and in each of these departments a different role is in you know the worker of each office has their role and the roles are very well defined and so all of this division of labor and structural separation of the domestic from work and other aspects of life from the workplace is um, is something very characteristic of the 20th century and I'm kind of interested in coalescing and bringing together different um, parts of life, let's say, into something more holistic and more like a, a unified fabric of experience. And so to me, a museum is a place where you can help to do that. Um, in this case, that's why I also separated the materials for the soil into different rooms, but then combine them so that they kind of, you, you, you sense the relationship to the building and the history of the 20th century's separation and division culture um, being attempted to be integrated again. Um, and in the museum, I think it's an interesting place to do this because the museum is a place where we model um, ways of behaving, ways of believing, ways of thinking, ways of experiencing the world. The, 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 the art museum is a place where people go to somehow have an encounter with their own culture or the experience of uh, an experience of their of their culture and maybe maybe where it's going or where it was. So it's a place where we can kind of 
try to experiment on that a little bit as a as a sort of model system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What that would mean for the museum of the future is, I guess, that um, the museum can become more and more involved in these living processes and different modalities of experience. And I think that that's kind of happening, you know, to some degree or another. And I guess the, re- the, the, the fact that I'm allowed to, to fill museums with material and let people walk on them and take them and, 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 and bring them home is, 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 has been good for me to see that that's, you know, I haven't yet been told I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Where probably, um, you know, 25 or 35 years ago, maybe this would have been a difficult thing to convince an institution to, to allow. Yeah. So the formalities that used to be, uh, and like this whole, the white cube era is, I would say, definitely gone. But even the, to the extent of like how uh, the air humidity has to be in a very specific way and the way the uh, light has to be in a very specific way can potentially be more and more um, modified and, and, and played with and to incorporate Uh, another type of visitor even <laughs> well what I like about the the idea of the white cube to use the the term you you bring up from you know these essays by Brian O'Doherty is that it, um, the the white cube produces focus it produces an ability to t- sort of distance the other sources of attention in life and focus on something mm-hmm. and I don't think that that Focusing the capacity to focus is such a bad thing, but I think that what the white cube does, um, which is more difficult for me to, to handle, is it, it it really is a machine to produce focus on a discrete material artifact of a human um, technological process, and so it's harder for the white cube to handle processes or worlds being constructed. It's not impossible, but it's harder. And so I think that we need to adapt those structures sometimes. But that said, if the air conditioning needs to be set at a certain number because, you know, in one room where you're displaying, say, an oil painting that's four or five hundred years old, it's not like I think that that's a wrong thing to do. It's just it's not the only way to create uh, experiences. And to me, the art museum will become more successful and more relevant the more it can delve into creating different kinds of experiences and not necessarily um, define itself in terms of the particular forms that visual art was being conducted in over the last 500 years. As we just witnessed, Artists such as Raza are in fact already accommodating non-human agencies in their work. Lithuanian researcher Katarzyna Jankowska has scholarly and curatorial interests that include critical posthumanism. She specifically focuses on artistic research, new media art, digital technologies and world-building practices. She sees productive qualities in the unstable posthuman condition. The quotes in Katasina's reading, along with the bibliography, can be found in the transcript on our website.
This illustrative description made me think about the work of the French artist Pierre Wick and his exhibition at the Serpentine Gallery presented uh, just a few years ago. The images there shown on the LED panels in the darkened room were constantly modified by the changing conditions of the exhibition space, such as temperature, humidity, natural light, number of visitors in the space, and uh, thousands of flies roaming over your head that had been born and were living in the space. So the whole space turned out to be a mutating, pulsating ecosystem consisting of biological and meteorological actors affecting each other and um, in a sense creating this endless feedback loop within the exhibition space. That sounds like a, some sort of future museum, doesn't it? But honestly, let's agree, this is not the image that usually comes to our minds when thinking about the art museum. Traditionally, the museum is an institution that is structured by human-centered protocols, and uh, it is a container that sustains the separation between nature and culture. It is a space through which speciesism was naturalized. And uh, I would like to mention uh, art historian Dorothea von Hanselman, who made a great point by saying that the white cube is an almost Cartesian space. It is cleared and freed of all penetrations of reality. It is a space in which all natural processes, temperature, light, acoustics are regulated. So the museum is a, is a completely human establishment. And Chad Elias defines two major limits of the art museum. Firstly, it is its gaze, which is implied to be human, and secondly, its subject, which is implied to be other, and the hierarchies on which those categories rely. So, 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 so in the spirit of emerging post-human narratives that, among other things, try to break down dualisms and acknowledge other ways of being, the question is not if or why, but rather how can museums and exhibitions reconcile the newly emerging post-human theories and bypass the narratives established by museum and give the non-human a position in the art institution. And I believe that this can take different forms. Technology evidently plays a big role in it. With the help of technologies, we are able to temporarily reconfigure our perceptual systems to adopt the non-human vision and see from the perspective of a dog or the whale or access realms that are outside of the human gaze. And uh, this is actually something that I personally got interested in after reading a book by media theoretician Jana Zelinska called Non-Human Photography. Um, but this mostly happens on a visual level. And just imagine us being able to temporarily reconfigure our sensual capacities and to have, for example, a dog's sense of smell 
how differently we could perceive the world then. Also, um, in the past two decades, there has been a rise in artistic works made in a collaboration with uh, non-human actors, with animals, plants, insects, natural forces, this way recognizing both biological and also technological agency and the creative input of the non-human, and this way rejecting the exceptionalism of the individual human artist. The Art Laboratory Berlin, I think it's a, it's a great example of weaving together art and biotechnology, fostering multi-species collaboration and incorporating other forms of intelligence. Just to name a few examples, uh, recently they presented works by Theresa Schubert, working with fungi, Robertina Shebjanic, investigating agency and the sentience of a jellyfish, and Spela Petric, exploring human-plant communication. Another project that I think is worth mentioning is um, created by Sema Bekirovic, called Reading by Osmosis, shown in Zone to Source in Amsterdam also a few years ago. Uh, it was a collection of human-made objects, everyday objects, such as a bowl or a shoe, and um, that were altered by wind, fire, rain, moose, uh, etc. So the nature here becomes both the creator and the artwork, and it, in a sense, extends the idea of the artist. And yet, the objects in that exhibition were put on the pedestals, and the exhibition ended up looking traditionally museum-like. And although curators stated that it was an attempt to present works by non-human artists on an equal footing with work shown in a museum, I believe that there is a, another point worth noticing. So... The presence of a particular kind of viewer is always a part of the artwork because it addresses the sensory faculties of the individual human viewer. So the depictive culture and um, systems of representations are indeed very human. And this foregrounds Carlo Salzani's thought. The turn to the animal brings to the fore the necessity of bypassing language, of exiting the representational cage in order to make sense of animals. And this is again something that your anecdote, Rosa, made me think about. If we would ever share a museum with non-human actors, how it would possibly look like? I think it's a very interesting area, because obviously, sensual experience and value systems are not the same amongst members of different species. Non-human animals have completely different perceptual skills and understanding of the world. So the same media that works for humans will not raise the same interest of non-humans. So just imagine, what if, rather than 
addressing the needs of the human viewer, curators and artists would be tasked to address the perceptual systems of animals and see them as participants in art. What new questions and forms of knowledge might emerge? And in the end, in what way it could possibly redefine the idea of what art is? And there were actually some quite interesting attempts to make art for other than human beings. A great example is the first edition of Blow Up, presented by V2 Lab for the Unstable Media in Royerham, which is primarily aimed at animal audiences. Invited speakers uh, were artist Emmy Young, who has created the new habitat for hermit crabs and a lounge space for crickets. Wilfred Howiebeck translated the Epic of Gilgamesh into the lexigrams that scientists used to teach language to apes. Elio Cacavale designed a TV for pigs. And there was even a play zone for cats if you would want to bring it along. Another work that comes to my mind is the immersive VR gaming closure created by Drew Thornton in which humans can engage in an arcade game with flies. The project is grounded in an actual behavior of flies, first understanding how flies perceive the world, and then creating a game environment where fly behavior is aligned with a human experience. So, 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 Even though humans orchestrate these human-animal interactions, they in the end decentralize humans from the position of the creator and the viewer. And it is of course still difficult to imagine where the trajectory of post-human ontology might take us in terms of exhibitions and museums. This path is definitely not obvious and probably there is no way to completely step outside of the human gaze. But I believe that such projects exemplify how museums can widen conversations surrounding whom museums are for and incorporate non-human entities as participants. So maybe one day museums will turn from controlled cultural containers to multi-species establishments, post-human ecosystems sharing space with animals, plants, insects, microbes, where prevalent conservation practices are replaced by natural and unpredictable conditions. Uh, thank you very much for your essay. I really liked it a lot. And uh, I want um, to talk about it now. But first, I think it would be nice if uh, you could explain a little bit about how you arrived at this research. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. 
Um, I think the starting point was the book that I mentioned um, in my text just uh, a few minutes ago. The Non-Human uh, Photography? Yes, uh, by Joanna um, Zielinska. And uh, in this book, um, she introduces the theory about the technological agency and how we perceive the world through technologies. And um, how, for example, I'm not sure if it was mentioned in the book, but um, how, for example, we ever saw the image of of Mars only through the camera, right? So the technological input and how it uh, structures our perception of life um, made me think about how how else we can use technologies to see something that is beyond human vision and beyond human gaze and beyond what we are able to perceive. And then I started researching um, artistic works that use technologies that are not intended um, to be used for artistic purposes um, to, for example, uh, see from the perspective of, a, of an animal or um, to detect uh, signals that are happening inside of a plant and, uh, and to see that plant is a, is a sentient being. Um, not as we usually tend to see, right? Um, and then the I think another reason why I started that it was my concern about the environmental crisis that is going on and how it it stems from actually the the humanist perception of the world and um, the division between nature and culture, human and animal, and the hierarchies on how we put human needs and human being on top and then mm -hmm. how we exploit nature and other than human beings and how it in the end turned out to be an a, a, a environmental disaster. So my idea was to to see how art can actually contribute using those technologies and uh, looking to the nature to, to maybe somehow change people's perception of, mm. of what's going on. What to you is the function of the museum? Well, actually, before coming here, I was a bit stressed about talking about museums because um, I didn't finish any museum or curatorial studies, you know. But for me personally, art is a form of knowledge production. I see it as something that you can learn and um, change your perception of, not necessarily non-humans, but in general, art touches, always touches important questions and uh, relevant questions at that time and artists address really important issues through very interesting forms that um, sometimes are really incomprehensible on, on paper, you know? So for me, a museum is a space where you can get that alternative kind of knowledge. Mm. It is also, it, can, it becomes a bit like the, the school for this. 
in a way or oh, it's yeah, you can put it like that yeah <laughs> why do you think that museums of today or the traditional museum um has to change Yeah, I think that we need to emphasize the fact that white cube is a western concept which started to dominate the art world and maybe we need to think outside of the cultural format of the exhibition instead of exposing and removing object from the original context for example to do the on-site uh, exhibitions. And this is actually something that uh, Pierre Week, the artist that I just mentioned before, made before the show uh, at the Serpentine Galleries. Mm-hmm. He set up a biotope in a park, in a compost facility in Castle. The work, uh, the work's description originally said, alive entities and inanimate things, made and not made, dimensions variable. So basically it was this compost facility he put the hive of bees on the head of the human nude sculpture it was the replica of max weber uh, then there were i think two dogs with a uh, pink painted legs walking around around this uh, moody dirty path and there were hallucinogenic plants uh, growing okay so <laughs> The whole space, so he decentralized the exhibition, but it was obvious that it's still an exhibition. It's an interesting um, attempt, I think, and uh, what was happening there, it wasn't controlled, you know, and um, when there are no viewers, the, the thing is still happening there, you know. So yeah, maybe that's one of the ways. I believe that interactive and uh, experiential participatory works There are some studies that uh, prove that this interactive artworks, they engage people more rather than just looking at the object on a pedestal, you know. So maybe engaging more than visual senses, which is like touch. Touch is almost forbidden in a museum, right? Mm-hmm. So if we engage, if artists engage more than visual senses, including, I don't know, smell and uh, sound and touch, It's also something different that can have um, an influence on our experience in the in a museum, right? Mm-hmm. In general, in your text, you are also mentioning uh, the senses as like something that is really uh, good to bring in, like other forms of senses. And I think that you are completely right that if we are if we start bringing in the touch, we also forget about this uh, dualist way of thinking about one and the other because we start interacting and the art where where you just can look at it just distinguish this the viewer from the object and uh, creates the yeah this sort of hierarchy yeah actually uh now i remember i was reading this paper by the author i can recall his name but i'm gonna um, say it to you later and in his paper he discusses the role of the traditional western landscape paintings that basically located the viewer outside or represented nature as a sacred space separated from profane. So this historical representations of landscape in art actually created this perception of the world as a distant spectacle and um, influenced the human eurocentric attitude toward nature. (laughs) 
would you think? And if so, to what extent could traditional mediums such as painting or sculpture, mediums that were part of forming this hierarchical humanist approach, a separation of culture and, and nature, do you think that could they could still be part of a new approach, like a more compassionate and relational approach to to the art well, discourse? <laughs> I think there's this kind of misleading understanding of both human being related only to technology-based art, only digital, only enhancing people with um, some sort of technologies and making us all cyborgs. I think the art that addresses this question doesn't have to necessarily be obviously post-human in the form, you know, to involve non-human actors, as I mentioned um, in my text, and uh, you also mentioned that. I think just the conceptual thought of going beyond this dualism or putting human as an uh, exceptional being is already opening up a conversation and um, challenging these established notions, you know. It makes me think of um, something my friend uh, told me the other day. Uh, she um, decided to make a painting in her house. And because the, that she currently has a moth problem, uh, or problem, I don't even know if it's a problem, but <laughs> she has moths in her house, these moths would start actually uh, eating up the painting, which I found really cool because it somehow it proved my idea about the fact that maybe artworks can also have other functions for other hu other than human species. That that maybe it would not be necessarily for the this painting would not be for the must to look at and to enjoy and think oh this is a great painting but it is actually some kind of nutrition for them and i found that really nice that even such a traditional medium such as painting can also contribute to this if you would allow it because of course in a museum now you would never allow uh, any factors to change or to destroy in quotation mark the work by having uh, insects living on it and eating from it. So do you think that they could this could be an approach? Yeah, I think the idea of uh, definition and purpose of art was changing through the course of history. And uh, I'm quite sure that it's going to change in one way or another in the future as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe it will incorporate completely different functions rather than aesthetic experience or alternative kind of knowledge or um, mm -hmm. any other purposes that art has now. Maybe it's going to incorporate another beings. And uh, of course, for them, uh, it will make completely different sense. But then would it still be art? For instance, this glass that I'm holding. If I saw this as art, but other, like millions of other species would see this as something else, could we still uh, allow it to be art? Would it still be legitimized as an artwork if there's, if it's only 0.001% of the living, <laughs> living entities on Earth that would consider this art? I think not every human will agree with you that this is art. So this is a question, you know, 
definition of art is um, is really ephemeral idea. So I think no one can actually answer the question what art is. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So, what do you think? Can art still be art if its purpose is no longer to be art in the first place? If we would truly share our museums with all other living species on our planet, is it even possible to stick to our current notions of art practices, art mediation, art education and the art market? Before we end this final episode of Taking Art Apart, let us hear some words from Taconi Stolk, whom Hendrik went into conversation with. The name art science evokes intriguing ideas about a study that is more than art for art's sake. What exactly does art science mean? And what relevance does the faculty aim to express? How do they express their concern for the future of art and the education of art? Well, the Art Science Interfaculty originated in 1989. It's a brainchild of uh, composer Dick Reimakers and uh, music psychologist Frans Evers, who both realized that, you know, in the future, artists would be working much more interdisciplinary and uh, cross-disciplinary and developing new disciplines. So they uh, they started this uh, this interfaculty. Yeah, it, in '89 it was called Image and Sound Interfaculty, and later in uh, uh, in the beginning of the 2000s we realized that um, actually everybody was by then doing all kinds of interdisciplinary things. Also, we saw an increase in interest between the arts and the sciences. So that was uh, uh, was all kinds of meetings back then and uh, you know, symposia and stuff about the fact that you know arts and sciences were really close together until they separated in the 18th and 19th century and now with all kinds of developments it might be interesting to see how these two instances of society can uh, can learn from each other again and maybe merge or find common ground somewhere so we noticed that and we also noticed that for the arts it's actually interesting to see how scientific knowledge or scientific skills or technologies can actually help to create new types of artworks that might also create more insight somehow on an experience level on what the knowledge of the then late 20th century, now the 21st century, actually means for our lives. When it was called Image and Sound, it was much about the, um, the disciplinarity between the different artistic disciplines. So that means, you know, uh, visual arts, uh, uh, music, uh, theater, uh, literature, uh, the, ra, ra, the strange blob that you call new media arts or whatever. They are different disciplines with different appeal to different senses sometimes, but mostly they also have different discourses. Uh, you know, fine artists has many ideas that are quite different in relation to how what it is to create a work of art than, for instance, a composer. There are many similarities too, uh, but, uh, you know, there's many things in which there's just a different way of thinking, which is partly uh, because of historical reasons and partly because of um, physical reasons of, of, of the medium, you know. We perceive sound differently than we perceive images, for instance. And so the idea of the interfaculty is to 
if you rise above all these different discourses, you also have developed this kind of meta view on uh, how, how these can interact, how you can remap things, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, you, you get to the idea that, uh, you know, we can take some aspect, before, say, composition in time from a musical discourse and put that to something in visual arts. And of course, there are visual artists who work with uh, video or film or sound or performance or whatever. So, but, you know, just to give an example that you can pick something from one thing, put it to another, see how that works and what, that, what new uh, possibility, uh, possibilities that gives. At the same time, in, in the sciences, you see the same kind of things happening. You know, if you look at... Uh, um, for instance, biology, and then you get uh, you have uh, physics, and you know physics they go to uh, nanoscales, and then you know biology goes to nanoscales, and then there's neuroscience, and that comes, you know, um, while all these uh, uh, different uh, uh, disciplines in in the sciences were very very handy to clarify nature, mm. at some point you see that all these sciences are actually also slowly merging into fields of research that actually you can't say anymore directly is this this is this biology or is it chemistry or is it physics or is it uh, does it even relate to my everyday life uh, how does it relate to my everyday life i come to that in a minute indeed so you know so you see in the sciences you see this different you see on a different direction you see the same thing happening so at some point you can also imagine that the arts and the sciences themselves also start to realize okay but maybe there is some more between us than we uh, than we actually uh, uh, thought for the last 150 years and then and we realized that apart from the fact that, that this, you know, oh, there's a huge amount of knowledge, technology, ideas that are used in science to reveal the truth in a certain way. I mean, I'm not going into the philosophical debate of uh, postmodern things and what is truth or whatever, but, you know, it is a true or false kind of system. Then you can imagine that the same kind of knowledge that you actually use to... to get to some kind of truth or uh, verifiable truth or whatever, you can also use for artistic purposes. So, you know, say biology or biotechnology, um, that was one of the first things that uh, actually emerged from that kind of thinking, uh, led in the, uh, in the beginning of the millennium to, to bio-art or something that was trying to see, okay, if we can... If we can work with biological material, can we also make artworks with that? Back then it was extremely controversial, uh, the idea that you would make living artworks or something like that. But actually that's also, that also points towards why it is interesting to do these kind of things. But anyway, you know, it, it, the thing is that if this technology is there and we have to rethink of what we are in, in, uh, in relation to what is life, is this subject to only scientists or philosophers to 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 think about? Uh, you can wait until you know the company's business uh, starts to do things with this. If they are going to uh, um, lead the um, the discussion at some point, might it not be interesting also to have artists think about uh, how you can uh, deal with these kind of things? So, you know, there is a relationship between. You know what what we as as society think of certain knowledge that comes to us, 
and uh, uh, how we deal with that to actually refine our place in the universe. So these kind of things are actually explored by philosophers and they're explored in the media and uh, actually as a result of the knowledge that science, uh, mathematics and you know, quantum uh, uh, science all develop. And the question is, okay, how do we do that? It's about understanding, which is the cognitive side of it, to say the logic side. Then you have, of course, there's a moral side. What can we do, what can't we do? What is what is allowed and what is not allowed in, in, in dealing with, with biological material, for instance. And then there's the most complex thing to explain, and that's, you know, what does it do on an experiential uh, level of feeling to us? And that's where actually artists come in uh, most of the time. You know, what we, what we create is, if artists start to work as explorers in, 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 in science, but then with the aim not to clarify knowledge, sometimes it's hybrid, but not necessarily uh, knowledge that is that is understandable. I understand how quantum mechanics work, but you know, you make works that actually make it experiential to live in a quantum mechanistic world. Then you add something and then you add something to uh, a society because I, I believe and I think I'm not the only one that all societies in all times in the world everywhere have something that you can define as art. And one of the main reasons for its existence is to unify the society in relation to the universe uh, in, in a sense of feeling at home, you know, having a, a placement where you, where you are. And that's, I think, where this relation to the sciences helps. Um, and that's an interesting period of you know, defining those kind of ideas. And then lately, um, if you talk about change, you see that world problems have been emerging, problems that were there already for a long time and, and maybe not recognized so much or acknowledged so much. Issues of uh, diversity, inclusivity, uh, decolonization, all these kind of aspects that relate a bit more to society as such and not how society relates to quantum mechanics in the universe, but, you know, what do we do? in society to uh, make a better future for everybody. That's, that's, that's uh, a thing that um, I saw coming in, in the latest period, so to say. And I feel like even in my 28 years of existence, like the world is changing very rapidly, technology is changing rapidly, and uh, you mentioned this feeling of home, but home needs typically some sort of continuum, con Continuity, mm -hmm. and uh, almost we are now at home in a constant state of flux, where the new technology is just around the corner, and I'm not even uh, uh, adjusted yet to the let's say you know where where the new one came from. And um, how do you see yeah this part of the future and how artists or people will interact with it? Uh, yeah, what does it mean for people that actually the innovation seems to be more important than yeah, maybe tradition or the things that the forefathers or whoever the people used to do? You know, in a way, if we make it uh, anyway, I, I mean, with, uh, with the climate and, uh, and, and stuff and, uh, and, and wars, I think we're in a transition phase. Uh, and that's for artists as well as for society in general. 
It's a bit like, you know, when the Industrial Revolution happened from the late 18th century. There was a lot of things happening and, and changing all the time. And no one was there to say, hey, maybe we don't need to mass-produce no, everything. No, there was no one to say, uh, you know, you're uh, having uh, people working for you as slaves. That is not an ethical thing to do. And it's horrible, but yeah, that, that these things reoccur also in a, in a way. But you see that there is a development growing and society needs time to adjust. And it took until the beginning of the 20th century, until, for instance, the labor organization became uh, uh, slowly powerful enough to really make a change and then you see that slowly and slowly you see that that develops into a society that actually is a bit better on many uh, uh, aspects than uh, than the society before and we need and we have learned uh, uh, as humanity how to deal with the structure of such a world in which you have all these industries and whatever mm-hmm. um, now you see since some uh, some decades that, uh, that there's this new revolution going on which has to do with, you know, the technologization. And you see that there, the same, in completely different fields, same type of problems are uh, are apparent. You know, we need to learn how to deal with, you know, a production of so much stuff that it affects a global environment. Media that are so ubiquitous everywhere that it's not clear anymore what is actually real and what is fake, that people don't believe in many aspects of reality anymore. That everybody is polarizing in, into little bubbles in which they exist. It costs time. First of all, it costs time to get used to that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the role for artists there can just be as how I described it uh, um, in, in the role of how to deal with the scientific knowledge, to clear paths in uh, experimenting in how we relate to that, how we can make different types of realization and experience of this complex communication world that actually makes sense and that make us feel kind of grounded. And, 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 and for artists, there is a huge potential to help building this collective understanding and a collective acceptance and experience uh, of this world in such a way that we feel at home in it. Okay. Very nice talking to you. I enjoyed it very much too. Thank you for uh, asking me. Well, we'll continue our uh, conversation in uh, in the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That was it, everyone. Special thanks to Asad Raza, Katarzyna Jankowska, and Takoni Stolk for taking part in this episode. This concludes the main episodes of our podcast, Taking Art Apart. Hopefully this theme will linger on in your minds for a long time, just as the future is always beginning now. If you want to know more about the guests and their practices, as well as extra source materials, please have a look at our description box. This podcast is made possible by Westenhaag.